0: Good morning, folks. Time for us to get started here. Good to see you each. We will continue our lessons here, our course on baptism, a Baptist view. And today we're going to talk about the practice of baptism by the New Testament church. So, um, we will begin uh, with a word of prayer, and I'm going to ask uh, Brother John Hogue, if you open us in prayer, please.
1: Yeah, sure. Great. So, Father, we thank you that uh, we can come here this morning just to learn more uh, from your word and how we should view this, uh, the new covenant sign of baptism, we just pray that your spirit would move in us and through our speaker, um, just guide us in truth, and... Uh, we pray also for the, the other uh, classes that are going on in the gospel that's being proclaimed mm-hmm. there in
0: Jesus' name. Amen. All right, take out your chart. If you don't have a chart, I hope you picked one up from the chair that's in the back. It should look like this. Take out your chart. And um, let me just orient you to where we are today. Today we are going to be talking about the fifth column in the chart. We've already talked about the first four columns, <clears throat> and the subject is going to be Christian baptism performed by the church. And we will be discussing the fact that uh, Christian baptism is performed by the church establishes the practice of baptism based on what was commanded by our Lord himself in the what is called the Great Commission. And so that's uh, that's where we're starting today. And if you want to uh, the M alliteration at the bottom there, we're talking about the maintenance of um, of Christian baptism or the observance of Christian baptism. So we're going to talk about, talk about the last column, and it means that uh, we are going to be looking at how the New Testament church did what Christ commanded and how it includes the prior steps of preparation for Christian baptism, which was... <clears throat> under John the Baptist, <clears throat> and um, included Jesus' own baptism and then the Judean baptisms by Jesus and, in particular, his disciples under his direction. Now, I'm going to say that if we have rightly understood the steps in the preparation for Christian baptism, if we've rightly understood Jesus' command in the Great Commission, <clears throat> then we would expect that the record of the baptisms in the New Testament would match our understanding of what we have seen so far. Don't you think that makes sense? Um, so far, we have seen nothing that supports infant baptism, and this will be a little bit polemical today, as I forewarned you at the beginning of the of the course. Uh, it's going to be a bit polemical, but we have seen nothing of infant baptism, but maybe, maybe, the record of baptisms that we see in the New Testament, <clears throat> after the Great Commission was given, after the Great Commission was given, maybe those uh, that record will uh, show us that we have overlooked something as we've gone through our uh, steps of the preparation of baptism. So we're going to look at those baptisms, and um, let me just say that I have heard Paedo-Baptists say that the baptisms in the New Testament, that the record of baptisms in the New Testament, is that which proves or supports infant baptism. John Murray is an example. So let's look and see, does it, in fact, do so? We're going to start by looking at one of the most important verses that the Paedo-Baptists would use which is found in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. And here we see uh, Peter giving instruction to the people after the day of Pentecost. He says, on the day of Pentecost, he says, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and there's the key phrase that they will focus in on, promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, it's important that we understand a little bit about the context here in order for us to understand what Peter is saying when he talks about the promises for you and for your children, what is the promise that he's referring to? Well, in the context, Peter is talking to the men of Israel on the day of Pentecost. And do you remember what happened? They spoke in tongues. Jews gathered around people from all around, many other nations, Jews who had been dispersed of many other nations, they gathered around, they hear them speaking in these foreign languages. Well, they don't know those languages, and so they think that they're drunk and just babbling. And Peter says, no, uh, they're not drunk. Uh, This is what was promised by Joel, the prophet, that I will pour out my spirit upon them. And it was also something that Jesus told them would happen when they went to um when they went to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And so he says to these, and the text tells us that it was the men of Israel that he's addressing uh, here on the day of Pentecost, after Pentecost happens, he says the following. Oh, wait, I think I got ahead of myself here. Yeah, okay, yeah. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So he's talking to the Jews, and he's saying, I want you to know that God has made him when he exalted him to the right hand of God. He's been, he has was raised from the dead. He was exalted to the right hand of God, and he's poured forth the Holy Spirit. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified... Kind of a a um, scathing denunciation of them, is it not? This is the Jesus that you crucified. He's made him both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And I think the reason why they asked this question like that is because they were cut to the heart because Finally, they realized we just killed our Messiah. We murdered him. What do we do? Here's Peter's reply. That's the context. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, this one whom you crucified for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God shook call. I want to look at this passage by noticing certain notes. I just call these note one, two, and three, etc. What is Peter saying to them? Well, first of all, observe the elements that we saw in the development of baptism. Looking at verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent. Does that sound like what we heard from John the Baptist? And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, does that sound like the Great Commission? For the forgiveness of your sins, does that sound like Both the Great Commission and John the Baptist. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a little progression. However, even that was prophesied by John the Baptist. So let's observe these elements. There's repentance or spiritualization, as we've talked about in the past, involved in what Peter tells them. There is the forming of a spiritual nation marked by baptism. He's talking to the men of Israel. And he says, I want you to repent and be baptized. And if, these, and if some of these Jewish men are repent, do repent and are baptized, then what do they do? They, perform, they form a nation even within the nation of Israel, just like we saw with John the Baptist. So within the ethnic nation, we see a spiritual nation being formed, and they're marked by baptism. There's reorganization of God's people going on here. Thirdly, we saw identification with Jesus. That's obvious. In the name of Jesus Christ, you're to be baptized. And then finally, the agency is pretty obvious again. It'll be the disciples who perform the baptism. And so in this response that Peter gives to the men of Israel, uh, we see all the elements of baptism that we have already discussed in the first four columns incorporated into their practice, and what he's telling the men of Israel um, on the day of Pentecost. Now, let's look at the structure of this a little bit more, and as we do, again, we're going to look at the next note, but uh, here is verse 39, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for, and then he names three groups, the promises for you, first group, and for your children, second group, and for all who are far off, and then the Last phrase is not a fourth group. The grammar makes that clear. It's rather, I believe, a description that covers all three of the first groups. It's a description that identifies and tells more about the first three groups. But let's look at note two here, and that is, it is the promise of the Holy Spirit that Peter is talking about here. It says, the promise is for you. What promise? The promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what, um, this is what John the Baptizer prophesied in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, when he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that was what was going on in the day of Pentecost and in subsequent baptisms that we will see in the book of Acts. And so the promise is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Third note, only those who repent and are baptized will receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who gets the gift of the Holy Spirit? Those who repent and are baptized. They are the ones who receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And even if you're a paedo-baptist and you think that the word children includes infants in this case. It is still necessary, according to this text, that they repent to receive forgiveness of sins in the Holy Spirit. Yeah.
1: But if you're not giving questions, I'll, I'll wait. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just uh, the order, because the argument is always that you hear from a Pharaoh Baptist would be the order in that. You know, repent be baptized, and then the receiving of the Spirit. So those who place more like a salvific emphasis on baptism, which we don't, would use that and say, look at the order. It's repent, there's no receiving, it's baptized, and then it's received, based on the baptism. You know what I'm saying? So I'm always confused by that. Because I'm saying that there's repentance, and we don't receive the Spirit if we're baptized a month later. Yeah, yeah. Is there a month period where we haven't received the Spirit?
0: Yeah, that, that's a good. That's an excellent question, actually. Um, and, we, and honestly, Eric, we're not going to have time to answer that whole question. But I will try to give you a little bit. That has to do with what's happening on the giving of the promise of the Spirit. And I believe it takes place in stages. And we'll see later on when some are baptized after they receive the Holy Spirit and so the order is a little bit different but the giving of the spirit takes place initially in stages but later on in the history of redemption everybody who believes receives the spirit and i and we can see me afterwards or any of you have more questions about that i i can give you a lot more information on what is going on there but that's a real quick answer <laughs> hope that's hope that was clear enough but what i want to point out here that, though is that Repentance comes before baptism, and even if there are children involved, they still are required to repent. Fourth note. Yes. uh, Don't you need to have the Holy Spirit working first before you can even repent? Yeah, that's true. Um, It is uh, the work of the Spirit to grant us repentance, the scripture says, and to grant us faith. So he is working in us to give us faith, And then, um, as a result of his work and our having faith, he comes to indwell us. Um, But the giving of the Spirit, John 7:39, he had not yet been given until the day of Pentecost, in in the way, in the in the sense that the New Testament uh, means it, and you have to look at. Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1, the first few verses about the promise of the Spirit, the promises, the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given, and Jesus ascended into heaven, he exalted the Father. And now he sends the Spirit. and um, And so that giving of the Spirit took place in stages initially, but eventually the staging process was completed. And now everybody who believes receives the Spirit. Okay, so that's real quick, but anyway. Note four, why does Peter say, and for your children? He does say that. He promises for you and for your children. Why, why does he say that? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons that make sense to me. First of all, because the guilt, because of the guilt of the Jews, the Jews had called down a curse upon their own children. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 and 25 when Pilate stood before the Jews who are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And he washes his hands as I wash my hands. I'm clean of the blood of this man. He's innocent. But what do the Jews say? The Jews say this after, after Pilate declares his innocence. He says, And all the people, that is the Jewish people, all the Jewish people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Wow, probably some of the same Jews standing there. Somebody remembers that. And they call out from the crowd. We called down the guilt of the blood of our Messiah on our own children. What do we do? And Peter says, that was Matthew 27, 24, and 25. And Peter, I think, wants to tell them, Even that sin can be forgiven because the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off. So I believe that's one of the reasons why Peter says that. And I think a second reason is simply because the phrase for your children is often used in the Old Testament and other places to refer to succeeding generations. And I think what he's in essence, he's saying, hey, look, this promise is not just for you today. It's for you, but it's also for your children. That is all the succeeding generations. as Jesus had it until the end of the age, until he comes again. And so I believe that's the reason why he puts that, why Peter makes that note in there. Um, now, so that's note four. Note five, uh, there is no reason to limit this to children of believers. To be consistent, it would include any Israelite children, would it not? Because he's just talking to the crowd of Israelite, Israelite men who are guilty of crucifying the Savior. And I doubt that every single one of them believed, but Peter doesn't make any sort of a distinction like that. He says the promises for you, you Jews, and for your children. That is, succeeding generations, that if we want to say that it's just children of believers, well, Peter doesn't say that. So why not baptize all Jewish children? Now here, I think, is one of the really key important um, elements in this text. So I put it in bold. Notice the phrase, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And I've already called your attention to this. It, it, I believe, qualifies all three of these groups. The promises for you, first group, second group, your children, and for all who are far off. And I think the, those who are far off refers to probably a dual reference, in my opinion, to the Jews of the dispersion who have been dispersed. And many of them had gathered there in Jerusalem and who would go back to the nations outside of them but I think it also has maybe a dual reference to those who are Gentiles, those who are far off. Ephesians 2 verse 17 talks about those who are far off being brought near to the covenants, plural of promise in Ephesians 2, 17. Again, we have to kind of hurry through that, but that's who those who are far off includes, but all three of those groups are qualified by the phrase, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Now, what kind of a calling is that? Talking about there, okay, election. Um, it is what is called effectual calling. God effectually calls His elect to Himself. This is not just some vague call out into the air. This is when when the Scriptures use the word call. There's only one instance that I'm that I know of where it doesn't refer to effectual calling. Um, well, unless when it's talking in a a kind of a salvation uh, context. The phrase, as many as the Lord our God shall call, then qualifies all three. So, in essence, he's saying, the promise is for you, as many of you, as the Lord our God shall call. The promise is for your children, as many of them, as the Lord our God shall call. The promise is for all who are far off, all the Gentiles. He's not saying every single Gentile. He says the promise is for you, for all who are far off, as many of those Gentiles as the Lord our God shall call. That's who gets the promise. So there's no warrant here for baptizing yet unrepentant infants. Well, what happens after Peter's sermon? Um, Acts 2.41 tells us, so, Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. A lot more people than that in Jerusalem, but that was a huge number to be converted on that day. But who was it that was baptized? The text does not say those who received his word and their infant children. If they had understood Peter to say that, they would have run home, got their infant children, come along, and before they got baptized, they'd get their kids to be baptized along with them, right? Wouldn't you do that? If that's what you thought he was saying? No, Bible doesn't say that. It says, those who received his word. Infants have a hard time receiving his word, I think. They're not capable of understanding yet. Some Peter Baptists say that we must assume that infants were included in this promise. (laughs) Well, that is an assumption, and that's an argument from silence, and the argument from silence can go the other way just as well. We would assume that infants were not included unless the text tells us. And in fact, I think I want to learn, along with the Apostle Paul, what he says in 1 Corinthians. He he says that uh, I want to learn from Paul when he says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Let's not start putting into the text things that are not there, and I think that's one of the big flaws of Peter baptism. All right, so that is the Pentecost baptisms on the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Paul or Apostle Peter uh, speaks to the to the Jews. Now, <clears throat> the next event, the next baptismal event. What we're going to be doing is surveying these events and just kind of march our way through them. So, kind of hang on. We're moving. I don't know that I'll get to them all. We may not, but uh, we'll get to as many as I can. So what about the people of Samaria? In Acts chapter 8, we read that when they believed Peter or Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, notice the kingdom of God is included there. Both John the Baptist and Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at, is at hand. Uh, News about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. He was a magician, a sorcerer, and um, he did magic and wowed the people with it. Uh, Even even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> well, what preceded the baptism of the Samaritans and Simon in this case? What happened before they were baptized? They were the of God. Yeah, Philip preached the good news of them and they believed it then, believe, and then I think that obviously includes repentance, he believed they repented, and then they were baptized. Why does the text, by the way, this is kind of a side note, why does the text point out that it was both men and women, yet says nothing about infants? Now, that's kind of an argument from silence. I'm not going to put too much stock into that, but I think it's an interesting observation that Luke went to the trouble of saying that both men and women were baptized. Now, what do we learn from Simon? You remember the case of Simon. He was baptized, and he he went on later to see the apostles laying their hands on people, and they are receiving the Holy Spirit. And then he thought, oh, wow, this is really great. This is better than my magic. So he went to the apostles, and he says, well, he offered them money. That they could, he could have this power to do that like they have it. And Peter says, your money perish with you. But what about Simon? That tells us that he's a, he was no doubt an unbeliever. But he'd been baptized. And the pedo will said, well, see, you Baptists, you say that you baptize only regenerate people. No, that's not what we say. What we are saying is... We baptize those who make a credible profession of faith. We do not claim to be able to see into a man's heart and discern their regeneration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. pado can't do that either. Yeah. Nobody can do that. The Lord alone knows the heart of a man. So we are not saying as Baptists that we can see infallibly into the heart of a man and we only baptize those who are repentant. No, what we are saying is, We baptize those who make a credible profession of faith, just like the apostles. The apostles baptized Simon. Do you think they did that willy-nilly? No, They, they discerned a credible profession of faith. It looked like he was converted. They baptized him. But later on, his life manifested the fact that he was not converted, and therefore he was excluded from the church, and that's exactly what we do as Baptists. And so, we learn from Simon that uh, how we are to deal with false professors. And we also learn from Simon that we don't claim to to, to uh, see regeneration. Wesley.
1: If you were, if the, let's say someone who's 30 years old, crazy life, just came to the Pangle Baptist Church, would they wait until they saw so then I made the same mistake with the adult, right? I'm just going to baptize. yeah, comes in, I mean, I don't think they would do it. I mean, I'm not like, hey, you're to church here, so you baptize now the more repentance later. They didn't say that, I don't think.
0: Yeah, so yeah, that, that's
1: until they see repentance, they think they see it. Then he might still fall away ultimately and make
0: the same mistake as a Baptist, I think, right? Exactly. That's that's an excellent point. Um, that's very true. Um, so well stated, uh, just for the sake of the tape, um, Wesley is saying that for the yeah, Wesley is saying that uh, a, a paedo-Baptist can make the same mistake. Here's an adult who lived a bad life, he comes in, he gets, he professes to be a believer. And uh, and he wants to be baptized in a in a paedobaptist church, and most responsible pedo-baptists would in fact want to look to see does he give a credible profession of faith, and they will say that R C Spohl says that for example, um, for for adults, but um, they're in the same position that we are. They might make a mistake. They might baptize him, and later on he might evidence the fact that he is not truly a believer. So they are good point. Um, all right, so uh, that's the baptisms in Samaria. Samaria were the half-breeds, by the way. We first saw Jews, now we're seeing half-Jews. Now we're seeing Gentiles. <clears throat> Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, his relatives and friends, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they, that is the believing Jews, were hearing them, that is the Gentiles, and the Gentiles included Cornelius and not just his household. If you read the context, Cornelius called out for his relatives and friends to come and hear what Peter had to say. And so it was Cornelius, those in his house, his relatives, his close friends, they're all there, and the Jews hear them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we Jews have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ when they asked, and then they asked him to remain some days. So
1: that phrase, all who heard his word." Does that mean all that were there or all those who were called within that group?
0: Yeah, I think in this particular instance, it's going to go on to make it clear that it is all those who, who were called. And um, so, because the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, meaning that he um, produced these effects that we see here speaking in tongues, uh, praising God. So, what preceded these baptisms? Well, Holy Spirit falls on them. They speak in tongues. They praise God. They believed. Then they're baptized. Who were baptized? Okay, all of them who were there. Not just his, uh, not just Cornelius's immediate household, but his relatives and his friends too. Is there support for infant baptism in this quote household baptism? I don't think so, unless you're going to say that the Holy Spirit fell on the infants, that the Holy Spirit, that, the, that they uh, heard the word, that the infants spoke in tongues, and that the infants, um, ex- well, I guess infants speak in tongues all the time, don't they? <laughs> At least my infant grandchildren do, and my kids did. Um, no interpretation. And, and actually, their speaking in tongues is about the equivalent of what we hear in a lot of uh, churches today. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Um, okay, so, and extolling God. So uh, they, they received the Holy Spirit. Do we want to say that of all infants? I don't think so. What about Lydia's household? Well, on the Sabbath day, we went outside. This is Paul. We went outside, or a big Luke writing. About Paul, we went outside the gate of the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together, Luke was with Paul. Um, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Now, does this support uh, infant baptism by Lydia's household? Well, what preceded these baptisms again? Was there not the preaching of the word? She paid attention to what Paul said. Was there not an opening of her heart by the Spirit? Some said, say, well, it just says Lydia's heart was open. It doesn't say anything about her household. Well, let me ask this question. Who was included in Lydia's household? What do we know um, about Lydia? Um, are there infants likely to have been in Lydia's household? <clears throat> what do you think? What do you know about Lydia? Well, she was a businesswoman, wasn't she? A woman from Thyatira, seller of purple. Uh, Who was her husband? We don't even know she had a husband, do we? Nothing is said about her having a husband, let alone having infant children. So uh, when we look at Lydia and her household, it is doubtful that she was married. It is not very likely that here is a businesswoman who had traveled 240 miles away from her home since she was traveling as a businesswoman carrying an infant nursing child. And we don't even know that she had a husband. So to say that this proves infant baptism, I think, is a a big stretch. and certainly goes beyond what is written. All right. um, What about the... Philippian jailer and his household in Acts chapter sixteen, and the jailer called for lights. You remember that Paul was in jail, and there was an earthquake, and the Philippian jailer thinks he's he's done for because they've got away, gotten away, and um, and yet Paul um, said, "Don't perch yourself; we're still here." And then the and um, and they had heard Paul singing hymns with Silas, and probably he spoke to him, the gospel, even through his uh, jail cell. Well, and the, jail, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He knew something about salvation. He knew he needed to be saved. So some, he, some message had been, some gospel had been preached him. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of God to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. All right. What preceded these baptisms? I hope this is, I mean, we're saying. A pattern here, are we not? Okay. What proceeded? Well, he heard the word of God. There was some evangelization going on. And um, and it says that, that he believed, they believed in God with his whole household. Now, just real quickly, I'm very aware of the fact that the word rejoiced and the word believing are in the singular, but the word with his whole house, Panoike tells us that it was the entire house that did what the jailer did. Whatever the jailer did, he did. The jailer believed, he rejoiced, his household did as well. And so uh, they are the ones, his whole household are the ones who were included in hearing and rejoicing and believing. And it's highly unlikely in the middle of the night, you know that this took place like after midnight, Highly unlikely that in the middle of the night <clears throat> that the um, mom of the house went into the bedroom, got her little infant child, woke that child up, said, okay, now Paul's going to tell us something. I want you to listen. And then took that infant out to be baptized. Not too likely, I don't think. So I don't think this text demonstrates anything other than is those who were capable of hearing the word, believing the word, who then get baptized? But about the baptism of Cornelius, oh, we already got that one. Oh, by the way, um, yeah. So let me let me skip to that, past that. Um, well, no, okay. Let me let me. I'm not going to skip that. And he left there. This is just kind of setting up the the case for us. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. A worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So here we have Crispus. What happens? What precedes his baptism? He believes in the Lord. What about the rest of his household? His entire household believed. And then they are baptized. We, don't, we see the same pattern here. Did this include infants? I don't think so. Okay, Stephanus and his household got a rush. <clears throat> I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. We just read about Crispus. And now in 1 Corinthians we read so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, where Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That was his main thing. He was preaching the gospel. And he did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Um, but <clears throat> what preceded these baptisms? Well, it doesn't tell us a whole lot in this particular case, does it? But at least we know that Paul uh, preached the gospel there. And, um, and I think we can assume, and here's a fairly safe assumption, and I'll tell you why in a moment, um, that uh, when they heard the gospel, they believed, they repented, and then they were baptized, that that was the order. But who was included in Stephanus' household? Anything here said about infants? No. But we know something more about Stephanus than just what we hear, what we read here in chapter 1. Because in chapter 16 of the same book, the Apostle Paul says this, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Oh, so his whole household was converted and we we rejoice when whole households are converted. My whole household was converted. My mom, my dad, my brother, and I all baptized at the same time. They were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves, this whole household devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So that include infants or the infants converted, the infants devoting themselves, they serve the saints. And in fact, It says, be subject to such as these. So the Corinthians are supposed to be subject to these infants in Stephanus' household? Is that really what this text is teaching? Don't think so. I think we can safely say that those in Stephanus' household were those capable of receiving, hearing the word, and of believing in them being baptized. Well, our time is gone. Um, We don't have time to look at the Ethiopian eunuch. Demonstrates... uh, I think, immersion quite well. They both went down into the water. He baptized them. They came back up out of the water. We'll have to skip a lot of this. Um, and by the way, John Calvin says in that particular verse, he says, here we see the mode of baptism of the ancients. It was immersion. John Calvin says that. He says, now today, we don't do that. But he says in, in the original, you know, back in this day, They submerge submerge the whole body in water. Uh, We don't have time to look at John's John's disciples. I'm going to skip past all of Tarsus. Let's go to our summary because we're getting low on time. Now, um, all the elements of the pre-Great Commission baptisms prepared for and were incorporated into Christian baptism as commanded by Christ as we've seen in these baptisms. You don't have to trust me on the ones that we didn't have time to look at they follow the same pattern. And remember that the Great Commission required making disciples by how? By preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of the in, in his name to all the nations, universalization, then baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commended you, and we've seen that same pattern in these baptisms. Every baptism recorded in Scripture including the household baptisms, and I did want to take time to look at those, and we did. Every baptism recorded in scripture, including household baptisms, follows this pattern commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ, evangelization, then faith and repentance, then baptism, and then we go out and teach them to observe. There's no exception to that in any of the book of Acts or any of the epistles. There's not a single command then. There's not a single example there is not a single discussion of the baptism of infants in the entire Bible. And you know what? You might think that that would settle the issue, wouldn't you? And even paedo-baptists agree that that's true. Yet, in spite of all that, our paedo brethren still insist that infant baptism is taught in Scripture. Many pedo-baptists teach that it is commanded in Scripture and that not to baptize your infant children is disobedience. And since there is no New Testament support for infant baptism, pedo-baptists resort to the Old Testament arguments by implication, to arguments from early church history and tradition to attempt to prove infant baptism. In addition to that, they will point to some New Testament texts that Pato Baptists will argue support infant baptism, even though they acknowledge they don't teach it. And those arguments will be the focus of our discussion in the lessons in coming weeks. And so in two weeks, I'm going to address the issue of the foundational argument of, of infant baptism, which is the covenant of grace concept. Um, And then next week, our brother John Hogue is going to be teaching us, is baptism required for salvation and justification? That's your topic, right, John? Okay. So let me ask you this question as we close. Should you, as a Baptist, feel like your children are being cheated out of something, that they are not obtaining some blessing that, God intended for them to have and the paedo-baptist kids get, get that blessing. R.C. Sproul acknowledges that baptism does not regenerate. It does not save. He says that baptism is a sign and, it's, and they might not have the reality that the sign is supposed to signify. In other words, they might not be Christians even though the sign is supposed to signify that they belong to the Lord. They might not belong to the Lord. And so when he's asked, well, well why, what advantages do, do children uh, who are baptized have? And you know how stroll talks, he goes, much in every
1: way. You know?
0: and, um, and so, and, and then when he, and his answer is, they have the promise of God. Now, that could be kind of convincing. You think, oh, wow, I, they got the promise of God. But think about that for a minute. A lot of people don't stop and think about it. What does that mean? They have the promise of God. Let me ask you this question. You're a Baptist. Do your kids have the promise of God? Is there some aspect of the promise of God that an infant who is baptized has that your kids don't have? When Paul says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and he says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, no difference between those who are circumcised and who are not. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you think that there's some? Is God in heaven saying, "Oh, well, that infant was baptized." I'm going to really answer His prayer. That guy, he wasn't baptized in them, but I might, I might save him. You think that's what's happening? Do you think that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate? Read Romans chapter ten, verses ten to thirteen. Whoever whoever you are, wherever you come from, you have the promise of God. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And that promise of God is just as firm for you, whether you are baptized as an infant or not. Nothing is said in the scripture that God somehow has a more secure, more firm, more eagerness to hear the ones who are baptized as infants than he does the children of Baptists. Brothers and sisters, don't worry. God's promise is just as secure for your kids and you, but you do, you do need to be encouraging them to believe, to repent, to trust, to know that God's promise is sure and firm for them just as it was for you and for anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord.
1: That's say this for us. It's encouraging. For the unbelieving wife is made holy by her. Believing spouse and the children of that marriage are set apart. Why? Because we believe in Christ. We're not saved because of that. They have the benefit of a believing spouse in their home who they watch live out their faith day in and day out. So our children do have a great benefit not because they're baptized as which doesn't change them inward or outward, but because they watch their daddy live for Christ and love him with all their heart. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, that is the blessing under the new covenant in a way that is unique and exciting.
0: Yeah. Amen. In fact, we'll, we'll talk about that text probably in the future because that's one that the like to refer to. Pastor Keith, would you close us in prayer then?
1: Father, we thank you for the gospel that Father from eternity past, you placed your love on us. And Lord, in these days, by your spirit, you called <laughs> us by faith and repentance and trust and believe. Lord, what a hope we have in Christ alone. Knowing that, Lord, there's nothing in ourselves, as a matter of fact, in our flesh, there dwells no good thing. But in you alone, you've made the power, your own power, demonstrated in us by the Spirit of God, through the work of Christ, that we have this new life in us. And we thank you for that. And we pray this for our own children. We know that our example and demonstration of Christ in our own homes are vital and important and a privilege for us and for them. Help us to live that out faithfully, day in and day out. Not to say one thing and do another. How difficult that is for our children. Mm-hmm. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would save many in our congregation, the children of those who are believing. Lord, we long for that. Mm-hmm. We love you, and now we pray that the preaching of the word, by our brother Heath, would be powerful to the saving of many, even this morning. Mm-hmm. Our encouragement, our moving forward in our faith. Our repentance from the things that hold us down and lay us aside. Thank you, Lord, for these teachings. Help us to hold them tight, and consider them carefully, and to walk in them. faithfully. We love you and thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. In name we Amen. pray.
0: Amen. God bless you, and uh, if I don't see you sometime after, we'll see you next year.
1: Thank you for that this morning, it was encouraging. I wanted to ask you, is there a, is there a path of, yeah I won't be here, but I'm just curious because I know that, I, I agree that I think the main problem that we face as Reformed Baptists is probably the arguments of our pedo-Baptist brothers. I think there's people, we see people moving that way. Mm-hmm. Will you speak to spontaneous Baptists? Will you speak to that element where I see it? On the other side, some of our Baptist brothers and sisters wanting to move towards this kind of altar call baptism labor principally kind of like, Will you speak to that as yeah,
0: far you know um, it's a good good question. I I hadn't actually thought about that. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, it might come it, it might come up but maybe now that you've asked me that question I probably should because I know I, I do know that that, that um it it would be easy to look at like the Philippian jailer for example and say, Oh look, see they there's right. baptized in the middle of the night. Yeah. So we just as soon as they make any kind of movement toward Christ, we baptize them. Mm-hmm. And I, but I do think that there is there are some changes and differences in our context yeah. that um that address whether we should do that. Yeah. And you know, there's there's a lot. Of the, the church hadn't developed the point, you know, with church officers and all that sort of thing, which we have now. So things do change, yeah. in God's design. Until, mm-hmm. but that's a good question. I don't. I might. Uh, I, I probably should incorporate that into my. It'd be, it'd
1: be an interesting, it uh, way. I mean, all the passages you cover today you cover them again, but with another nuance, you know. Yeah. But anyway, I was just thinking about that. I, I am encouraged by the things that you're teaching. It's been encouraging for my wife and I. Let's raise the Lord. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Hey, so, brother Jim. Good, good class. Good. good. I, I was curious about the the household stuff. Is it? It seems like the Hebrew or the Jewish mentality was, you know, you circumcised everybody in your household, whether they were born in your house or a slave or any, any the, you know, the command, I think, to Abraham was mm-hmm. take all the young men in your house or Moses, whoever started that. You know, circumcise everybody. And, and of course...